But anyways, um, so yes, if you speak up, you're gonna be on. You're gonna be on the internet. <laughs> okay. Uh, but anyways, the everything is gonna be. Uh, the whole idea of doing a kind of top, nothing connected to one another, just kind of an overarching theme is if somebody misses a week, they could just jump right in or maybe, because I know some people said that they couldn't come start coming until July um, because of bowling, for example, and so that will allow them to jump in whenever they want. So, and so we will meet every single Thursday at 7 o'clock here. If we get if we ha if we need to we can move into there, into the fellowship hall. Um, I like here because I still have a tiny bit of cell phone reception, so I can use my iPad. And the, and the chairs are more comfortable. Yeah, that too. Um, and the only two exceptions will be the first two Thursdays in August. I will be on vacation. I'll be, I'll be where it's warmer, but in in August it's it sounds so exciting. <laughs> It's like it's huh? Where? Orlando. So and Georgia and anyways. God's country. <laughs> so my, actually I actually get I get a guest preach in my vicarage congregation, which will be kind of fun. Oh. Yeah. So I have not been there since the done the end of my vicarage because it's not easy to get it, get down to Georgia. No, I don't understand. So anyway, so what we are going to do is kind of start with the topic of very elementary topic of how to read your Bible effectively. And I say this because there are a lot of practices and habits that we tend to get into when it comes to um, our reading of our Bible. Some of it, a lot of it was just trained, kind of something that we uh, picked up from, we pick it up from somewhere. Um, and so what we're going to do is look at what are ways to what are the steps that you take to best understand a passage or a section of scripture? And the very first thing you need is a good Bible translation. And I say that because now every single translation is ultimately still the Word of God. But not all Bible translations are created equal. And what happens is, the thing is, is no matter what, if you're in a translation, you're always going to have... Um, a bit of a distortion. You're always going to have a little level of static from the actual text. So how do you pick out a good translation? That's what I'm going to help that's you. A, that's <laughs> now, one of the, we're going to go through that. So <laughs> that's what... Um, now, the Bible was written originally in Greek. Well, the New Testament. Well, the New Testament was Greek, Aramaic, and then the Old Testament was Hebrew and Aramaic. And so... Um, and so, like I said, you're dealing with translations, and there is no such thing as a perfect translation. It doesn't exist. And uh, the Greek, I mean, the Greek, even the Greek is, I mean, even somebody translating from the Greek will not always be perfect either, um, because they're going to have their own biases, and you're going to have, that's inevitable. They have to deal with biases of the translator. But, again, there's... There's strong translations. There are weak translations. The one I have open right now at the moment is a weak one, and I'm going to I'm going to show that in a little bit. Um, I have multiple. If you go into my office, I have multiple translations there, uh, but I predominantly only use one. So okay. So the first thing I'm going to say is, um, first off, 
Okay, so what you're looking for in a translation, want something that you can read. So this is kind of important because admittedly some of the, the most accurate translations of the Bible are not always the most readable. And so you have to ask that question, is it readable? Uh, and then the second question, so those, but you do still want accuracy. So it's kind of always a bit of a, an, a, a balancing act. Um, so, so that's the first rule. Number two is avoid gender neutrality. And so, for example, I have a few verses there from Psalm 8, verse 4. So the NRSV says, What are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? The NIV 2011, and this is an important distinction. There are two different versions of NIV. Most people, when they say NIV, they're thinking of the one from 1984. A lot of people don't realize that there is a new NIV, and if you go to a bookstore and buy an NIV, you're getting the new one, not the old one. So the, the new one, the old, the old one, you cannot find it in print anywhere. Um, you can't even find it on the internet. Zondervan has, and Zondervan has threatened to sue anyone that tries to sell it. Because? They're, Zondervan, who owns it, is not a, really a Christian organization. They're, they just found a way to make money through Christians, really. Their own, but the guys that own it are the same people that own Fox. So, so you're saying my Bible is bad? Probably not. You probably have the 1980. When did you buy it? Yeah, that's 1984. That's the good one. So that was, I think that might have been before Zondervan got bought out. So I think at one point Zondervan was actually good, but then it got bought out by Big Publisher, which is owned by News Corp, which owns Fox News, Fox, which all Fox cares about is money. So, um, so anyway, so here's what they're in the 2011 translation. It says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? All right, so New Living Translation. This is, I would say the New Living Translation is actually one of the weakest translations, but it says, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Here's what the ESV says. Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Notice a difference? Mm -hmm. What's the difference? Like the son of man. It's, it's, Notice just the, just the pronouns, what's different. Yeah, it's man versus human beings versus, and I would say human beings would encompass everybody. Somebody, somebody could yeah. uh, misinterpret just man. But you notice the pronouns. But you notice the pronouns as well. What's the what's different in the pronoun? You're mindful of him. So him versus them. 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 Mm -hmm. So one's plural, the other ones are singular. The NASB, New American Standard Bible, that's one that probably is the strongest of translations, but it's not always most readable. But it says, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now... Seems like such a small thing. Oh, well, they just want to be nice and inclusive of women and all that stuff. Well, here's where the problem comes. Uh, look up Hebrews chapter 2.
and actually go to verse 5. I mean, who'd like to read verse 5 to 9? It is not to angels that he has been subjected, the world to come, that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. To verse 9. Oh, to verse 9, okay. Yeah. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Okay, so that verse, so you notice a quote of that verse from, that verse from Psalm. According to the, that verse, according to Hebrews, who is that verse about? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. When you make a gender neutral or plural, who is it all of a sudden about? Everyone. Which basically means you kicked Jesus out of the verse, or you made him a very teensy-weensy, itsy-bitsy part of a verse instead of <laughs> the verse. That's what gen, why gender neutral. Every every translation had most translations have some level of gender neutrality, but um, the one a good translation is going to be very cautious about when and where they use it, and um, and like I said, the ones that are very flippant about it, which is what a lot of the modern translations are starting to do, is they will change. It changes the meaning of the passage. And this is a case, and um, and it's actually kind of part of the overall liberalization of Bible translations. Um, so why I have this one open? This is um, this is taken from Isaiah chapter seven, verse fourteen. It says, "Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Look." The young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall call name him Emmanuel. Did you catch something wrong in that verse? The young. What was? The young woman. Instead of? The virgin. Mm -hmm. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. But they change it to young woman. Now, technically, technically in the Hebrew they are right. But the thing is, is that if you go into the... Okay, this is what here. What is right here? This is the Greek Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and this predates Christ. This is over a hundred years before Christ was uh, born, and in that verse, they use when they go into in this that same verse in Isaiah, they use the Greek word Parthenos. So in the he, the word the Hebrew word could either mean young woman or virgin. But Parthenos in the Greek only ever means virgin. And that's what the Septuagint uses. And what does Matthew use? Virgin. Yeah, he uses virgin again. He quotes those, ver those exact words. Behold, the virgin shall conceive 
and bear a son, and his, you shall call him Emmanuel. So in other words, um, Matthew also says this is a ver uses the word virgin. When it changes it, so basically when they changed it to young woman, they're basically saying, well, the New Testament really didn't know what they were doing. So, and by the way, this is a problem with the, the NRSV and um, to some degree even the RSV. Um, although the RSV kind of hit it a little bit, be didn't have it as overt as the NRSV does. But the translators do not believe that Jesus could be, that they do not believe that there can be any prophecy regarding Jesus in the Old Testament. They reject all of it, which is, that is the reason why they did that. It's because, well, if that's in there, we'll have to admit that there's a prophecy. They're trying to soften it. Another example of this would be in Psalm 22, and see, and this is one that you actually, if you, we usually read this on Monday, Thursday as the altar is being stripped, but verse 17, or sorry, got to, oh yeah, verse 16, in this, in the RSV, NRSV, it says, for dogs are all around me, a company of evildoers encircles me. My hands and feet have shriveled. This is how the ESV translates it. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Different than shriveled. And by the way, they try to argue in here, well, the Hebrew word is unclear. It's like, no, it's very clear. It means, it means pierced or dug into some type of a hole being made into flat and right. mm -hmm. And again, Septuagint confirms it. And the Dead Sea Scrolls have confirmed that too, which is even older than the Septuagint. And that's, it's actually kind of funny. The, um, it's the, the Jews will actually try to claim that Christians changed that verse. And what they do is they have, if you go into the, um, into like the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia. That's the big name for the Hebrew Old Testament. That's the book that every, every single pastor that goes through Hebrew has to have that. And they get, alert, they get to have fun translating it. And when you get to that verse in verse 22, the Hebrew word literally says, like lions, hands and feet. That's what it literally says in the Hebrew. But, the, the so, and I actually asked one of my professors at the seminary, I mean at CUW once about it, and you actually, you guys both got to hear from him, Dr. Jastrom, when we went to CUW last summer. Um, I asked him once on it, and he said, and I said, so what happened? He says, he, he straight up said that very likely the Jews changed it. And the reason is, and the reason we could say that is because the earliest evidences for the pierce my hands and feet, the first one is over 100 years before the birth of Christ. Well, the, no, the first one is the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is like 300 years before the birth of Christ. The other one is the Septuagint, which is 100 years before the birth of Christ. So either the Christians got a DeLorean and went back in time and changed it, or, you know, yeah. back to the future. Okay, make yeah. sure we got that one. <laughs> or it's much more likely that it got changed later. And the thing is, the Hebrew text that we work off is known as the, it's mostly based off of the Masoretic text, 
which is something that's put together by um, by rabbis. Um, right now, they are working on putting together a new Hebrew copy that incor- heavily incorporates the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, that's supposed to come out in 2020. It's an extremely extensive project to do any of those things. So, what would be their motivation other than to suit themselves? To change to that? change it. Um, actually, basically, it's to discredit Christianity. Yeah, because they don't believe. Yeah. Yeah, but how long have they been Messiah. saying that Christians changed it? At least a thousand years. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they did it to suit their own selves then, or is that... Kind of, yeah. It's like I said, it's the because the thing is, they know it with the actual translation. That is a pretty convincing uh, prophecy regarding Jesus because they know he was his hands and feet were they, pierced. They probably don't use that bit of history then, do they? Which part? The, that that was changed by. No, they wouldn't say that. They won't. So teach, they would never admit they that. They don't teach that. And the thing is, is our and the sad thing is, liberal Christian scholars will back it up. So, because they, again, don't believe that you can, that prophecies can happen. So, so that's why, like I said, that is the challenge of NRSV, the new NIV. Um, that one, by the way, that is a Bible. It's a good one to keep a hold of because those things are going to get harder and harder to find. You're going to basically have to start going to used bookstores to buy them. Yeah, this is actually a Concordia study Bible. Yeah, and even those are now, they're not selling those anymore. Hmm. So, because the Lutheran study Bible did, has been replaced it. But I kind of, now that, because the Zondervan has done what they did, I wish they would start bringing those back just so that somebody would still have the 1984. Because the thing is, is CPH is the only group that is still able to produce the 1984 NIV. And they could do it only with the Concordia Self-Study Bible because because of the dual copyright. Mm -hmm. And so basically, because they own half of the copyright, they can print it if they want. And Zondervan can't do anything about it because they already made the contract to letting them do it. And they're gonna get checked no matter what. So whereas, um, like, and by the way, the Wisconsin Synod, they are, they really got bit by the whole NIV thing because they, a few years before the 2011 edition came out, um, the Wisconsin Senate decided to sign a contract with Zondervan to make NIV to be their official translation. Mm. And then that one came out, they're like, not that one, but the, I mean, the 2011 one came out, and they're like, oh, no. And they were, and Zondervan gave strict co- com- Strict instructions to all of them, if you read this from your pulp, if you read the 1984 from your pulpits, we will sue you for copyright infringement. And now the, so basically Wisconsin said it has tried to figure out any and every way they can to break the contract. Mm -hmm. So, which is why pretty much all of us are like, why did you just join the ESV like we did? Just gone on the same. Isn't the contract (laughs) already broken because they changed it? No. I think they had. I think the contract was they had to accept, use whatever is the standard translation of Zondervan. There's probably something in the contract, that, yeah. Anyways, um, so next thing is uh, know the difference between a translation and a paraphrase. Um, a good example of the a really good example of a paraphrase is the message. 
Um, a paraphrase is basically an interpretation of a translation. So basically somebody took an NIV or ESV or whatever and they reinterpreted that passage into what they think is more simplified language. So this, you know, so that um, Psalm 8 verses that we just read, this is what it looks like in the message. I look up at your mackerel skies, dark and enormous, your handmade sky jewelry, moon and stars mounted in their settings. Then I look at my micro self and wonder, why do you bother with us? Why take a second look our way? Very radically different. Um, I would honestly avoid paraphrases um, just because they can, you're, so the, the static you already have with the translation, it's like they just turn it up to the full blur, like when you're trying to get into HBO when you don't have it. It's almost at that level. <laughs> so, because I mean, it, literally, it can actually strip away almost all the meaning of a passage. And I say that knowing that we as a Missouri Synod have produced a, a, a paraphrase at one point. And that was known as the, an American translation, the AAT. Um, sometimes it was like a black brick type Bible, or sometimes you'd find a red version of it. And like, um, or sometimes it was known as the Beck translation because a professor from Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, uh, translate, translated it, well, or put it together. And admittedly, in terms of, par I mean, as paraphrases, I mean, as Lutherans will probably like, a Lutheran would like it. Um, but still, it is ultimately a paraphrase, and it should pretty much only be used for a devotional use, never as your primary translation, if that makes any sense. Um, and I say that, <laughs> yeah. Excuse me, what verse are you referring to in this message? That would be Psalm 8, three and verse 3 and 4. Okay, thank you. So... Because they always, when in the message, they always couple group verses together, so I didn't couldn't get just verse four. But like, so if you want to see comparison, so like the why do you bother with us? Why take a second look our way? That'd be pretty much the eight, verse four. So you could compare it to even the ones up there. So they still have the us problem, and and it's just really weird the way it gets. And actually, it's very self. It's a very self-absorbed verse when you look at it. So he's kind of self-absorbed anyway. Huh? He's kind of self-absorbed anyway. The writer. Probably. He's rather, yeah. He's been rather discredited and. Oh, the message trans. Mm -hmm. Oh, I thought you'd been David. Man, like, yeah, the, King the David was at times too. No, not David. <laughs> the man behind the message. Okay. Yeah. Can't think of his name, but. And I think, fortunately, a lot, most, a lot of churches have stopped using them, mm -hmm. using it, so, which is good. And by the way, if you want to see a really interesting translation or paraphrase, look at, look at the word on the street Bible. Hmm. It's the street, it's like the, the street slang translation, mm -hmm. where like Peter is no longer Peter, Peter is Rocky. And I, I, I shouldn't really laugh at it, but me and my friend one time when we were at, when we were in Concordia, Wisconsin, we sat there and read Psalm 23, and, and we were just cracking up because of, it's like, I lay down on my couch to listen to my favorite CD, and, and I'm like, <laughs> like, it's, 
I was like, there were, once there was no, once there was dark, and then bang, bang, there was a light. I was like, <laughs> so, yeah, we kind of, we should have laughed, but we did. Yeah, we really have to be careful. Mm-hmm. We do. So, but anyways, that was, that's an extreme version of a paraphrase. Um, the King James Version provides a couple, some translation problems. One is, and I say that, and understand what you'll notice. Yeah, that's my book. So, and we're going to show some of these. And that's actually helpful that you have one, so you can, mm -hmm. put, you can read one of the verses. Um, first off, Luke 2, verse 7, if you want to look that up. I have it, if you want to read it. Okay. And this is from the Revised, the New King, New New King, King James. James. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Okay. So now understand, actually, the, the word, translation of the word in isn't pretty much every translation now. Except, actually, a rare moment where that new NIV actually did well. Um, is where they would, okay, so if, if you were to ask your average person on the street, what is, what is an inn? Well, how would they answer it? Hotel. A hotel. Or, yeah. Yeah, motel. Motel. Well, like in the King James, and, and that is the word that we use in pretty much every translation, and the reason is the King James started it. And when the King James translated it as inn, it was right. The problem is, is that word has changed its meaning. The word in, pretty much most houses in the six, you know, 1600s had inns. Most houses did. Really? An inn was not a hotel. It was a guest room. And it was basically a place where you would have people stay when they're visiting from out of town. And that is, and actually if you read Luther who's, you know, very close to the same time period, he's talking about the same word and the same understanding. And what happened was somewhere, um, but at some point in our language, it sh shifted, the, the meaning of the word shifted, but none of our trans modern translations adapted to realize, oh, this changed, this does not mean the same thing. And so the work, because the, ho the hotel type in, if you actually look at the history of what Bethlehem was like at the time of Jesus, it wasn't big enough to have an inn. Um, they didn't, or like a hotel type inn. Right. And there is one place where the ho the word inn, like used like a hotel, does appear in the Gospel of Luke. Do you know where that is? It's in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Oh, okay. Yeah. Where the um, man who's beaten is left. That is an actual, that's a hotel type inn. But it's a completely different Greek word. Um, the Greek word that is used here is the same word that is used for the upper room. It's a kataluma. It's the up. It's the same place where the Last Supper happened. In the upper room. Yep, in the upper room. And most houses in first century Israel had this. What they would have, the way their house was, is they would have a main living room. They would have a, they, then upstairs they'd have the they'd have the bedroom the main room the bedroom main bedroom and then you'd have the inn or the upper room which was the guest room and that is a place that there was no room and it makes sense that there was no room because of the census with the census going on you had um, basically other family members probably were staying there because they would have been staying right. with family mm -hmm. uh -huh. and that's why they're going to Nazareth why they're going to Bethlehem because of 
his ancestry. What actually, and actually, when you realize it's actually supposed to be a, like a guest room, it actually kind of makes the whole situation even worse. If it's a, if it's an innkeeper that just got, like, I'm sorry, I just don't have any room. I'm poor. It's kind of tough. It's a tough situation. But when you're talking about a family that has a choice between, you know, Uncle Bill and Aunt Susie or whatever, up in that middle room, and they they could they could go into the where the manger is themselves, or the pregnant woman. You pro ideally you pick the pregnant woman, but that's not what they do. They put her where the manger is, and to kind of give an idea as where the manger is, it would be indoors, and, and it's an attached part of the building of the house, but it's almost like a re like think of your worst. I mean, this is pretty easy to imagine because we live in Iowa. Think of your, think of your typical farm, and that one garage where the the tractor is that has not seen the light of day since the Korean War. That type of place. That is the type of. <laughs> we know you all know people like that, right? <laughs> Maybe not that far back, but my dad has place. We have places like that up at our farm in Minnesota um, <clears throat> but anyways that is the type of place where they're at because they would bring they would have mangers in there because they'd bring animals in at night especially if it was cold um, but because it is um, most likely either in the late fall early spring there's debate about that um, it was they were not inside they're outside and we get that because they're tending the sheep nearby. And so, but like I said, that's where it is. It's in a very grungy, cold, awful place to be in. That might be another reason why so many of them didn't accept him when, as Messiah because he didn't come as a king, but he came as a lowly. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, now the... Scripture doesn't really tell us, and this is admittedly speculation, but I speculate the reason why he was made to be born there was because the family knew he was a bastard child. Because huh? they didn't know who the father yeah. was. Yeah. And they knew it wasn't her Joseph. Family, her family. They knew, who, they know she, obviously they know she's the mother. That's <laughs> right. like, yeah. are, yeah, that'd be really bad. Ask a pregnant woman, are you the mother? Uh, <laughs> So, but yeah, but they know Joseph's not the father. Pretty much everyone knew that. So the so because he was not, <clears throat> because they don't know who the father is, there would be like it would be kind of a shame. They couldn't accept that the Holy Spirit was right, or that yeah. he planted the seed and, and brought it about. And to be fair, probably most of us wouldn't believe it either. I don't You're think right. any of us would. Like, I, somebody told me, yeah, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> Because that only happened once, so. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, anyways. And it is, yeah. I've been trying to track what uh, version I have, and I, accordingly, I have the NIV version that says June 1978. So you have the yeah. even older. You're good, man. But that's pretty close to the, <laughs> don't, the difference between the 78 translation and the 84 is just like, itty bitty spots here and there but it's very small okay but I'm, I'm trying to get this to support what you're saying in the uh, 
indication or dis description of what verse 2-7 is. It says that it was very early tradition suggests that it was a cave, perhaps used as a stable. Yeah, that's in the footnotes. So that's the... And know. there's there's some people that argue that, and it's based off of a writing by Justin Martyr, who was in the second century. Um, there's some debate on There's discussion on that part okay. of it. Okay. But the most most have argued against the end word right. and using that right. as guest room. And like I said, even Luther was talking about that. So, um, but like I said, so that's just kind of a good example of where the language changes. Um, so another thing, now this is a big, this is another issue. Now this is a real challenge in the um, King James or New, and the New King James actually falls into this. Even Luther's German falls into this problem if you decide to read a German Bible. So First uh, John 5, verse 7. Now, not to select you again, but can you go with oh, the yeah, New yeah. King James one? For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Okay, anybody else that's following, did you catch a difference? Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. Did yours have that? No, I don't know. Look it up. Read. You want me to read it again? Verse 7? Yeah. yeah. Mine says, for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Okay, so yours, and that's out of verse 8. So you have a part that's in there that... Um, is not in any other translations and most modern translations. And the reason is, is this is a manuscript problem. And, and this is a problem that also Luther had to deal with in his, um, in his German translation. And the reason is, and it's honestly the person to blame is Erasmus. Erasmus is the one that put together the standard Greek translation in the, in the 16th 15th and 16th century. It actually is a standard Greek for a couple centuries. And there's a few problems that would happen. Like, for example, there's some verses where he would have no Greek manuscript at all. And what he would, and, and this happened specifically in the book of Revelation. And when that would happen is what he would do is he'd go grab the Latin Vulgate and translate it back into Greek. And so what you're getting is a translation of a translation, which meant that there's a few verses in Revelation that get distorted a bit. Um, but then you have problems here where you have, and this is something that's what's really kind of bugs a lot, a lot of Greek scholars that they just want to drive, fly back in time, find that DeLorean, and go back to Erasmus <laughs> and say, don't put that verse in. You're going to... Anyways... Um, the reason is, is Erasmus knew that that did not belong there. But he put it in there because he was pressured. He was afraid of what Rome would do if he left it out. Because it is in the Latin Vulgate. But the oldest Greek manuscript to have those, the words that you had in there is from the 10th century. A full thousand years later is when it shows up. And so, and the thing is, is like, you know, somebody, and I'm, um, one of the th 
commentators on this textual variant. I'm going to talk about textual variants a little bit, but that's a big Bible challenge. But in one person mentioned is if it was originally in First John, they would have made heavy usage of it at the Council of Nicaea when they're defending the Trinity because it's like awesome. It's an awesome passage for defending the Trinity if it's there. And but because it isn't there, but he thought it should be. He put it. He didn't think it should be. He was afraid. He did, he put it in there for fear. And then because that's what was the standard Greek at the time, that's what the King James is translating out of. So the King James just did not have the knowledge that we do. So and I'm sure cross it out of my Bible. Read it anyways. Just be aware of it. <laughs> um, and I, by the way, when it comes to the language thing, the New King James, like in terms of outdated language, the New King James pretty much erases a lot of that problem. Uh, the New King James, really the only major concern there is the manuscript issue because the New King James was stubborn. They knew about these issues. They're like, no, we're going to stick with the, oh, come on. You have a chance to do it, fix it. <laughs> and you'd have a, honestly, if the New King James had done that, they would be the translation but they were stubborn. <laughs> so, um, but with that being said, so like, so talk about, so just on translations, I kind of can't put together kind of a tier system as to what's the top translation, second tier, um, and then third tier. So these, those that I have listed there, they're all good translations ultimately. And by the way, one of the strengths of the King James the King James does have strengths that the others don't. Um, sometimes they translate ver words way better. For um, Actually, a really good example, again, uh, Genesis chapter. This is actually kind of a more of a word cho ch choice where neither none of the translations are wrong, but our English language... The King James makes a better better move dealing with our goofy language. So, because English doesn't always work. <laughs> Genesis what? Oh, sorry, so Genesis chapter 3. Um, I got a verse 15. So, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Okay. Is that what you're referring to? Yep, that's the one. So specifically the first half, what do they use instead of offspring in the King James? Seed. Seed. And that is a better translation. And the reason is it's because the offspring is such a hard word to make singular. And, and it's bruise. Huh? And also bruise. Yeah, well, and that's actually the King James, or the ESV and the King James, do they do bruise both times? Mm -hmm. That's actually more accurate because um, the – and the ESV does the same thing. And I don't know why the NIV did that. If they're going to use um, – because what was the other – trans? it was bruised and what was the other Strike. one? Strike. Striked and, and crushed, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. he will crush your head. He yeah. Crush your head. And you will strike he will his heel. Okay, so the problem with when the NIV does that, I'm not totally know. I don't totally know why they do it because the exact same Hebrew word is used both times. So if they're going to use crush on one, they need to use crush on the other. If they're going to use strike on one, they could use strike on the other. So the King James, the ESV, both do the 
bruise, bruise. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's the same word. Um, but the big thing I was going to really, the biggest thing, though, is that word offspring. Mm-hmm. Is offspring, it can be plural, it can be singular. And that's, that's a problem with the English language. The Hebrew word there is most definitely singular, which is, and which is very important because it's reminding you it's talking about a specific person. And this gets reiterated throughout the book of Genesis. And that is a strength. That's one of those strengths out of the um, King James. And another thing that the King James, and there's a lot of points where King James does things like that, where they're, they're not trying to um, soften the translation. They go right at what it's supposed to be. Um, another thing that the King James, I like they do, is it, especially the old King James, the new King James is softened up at points, but the original King James, they are trans, there are verbs, there are words in the Greek, I mean in the Bible, that our modern translations don't want to translate it the way it's supposed to be because they're too sheepish. Uh, <laughs> and I mean that because it's like, because some of it's like, the Bible could never talk like this, so we're going to make it look nicer. And so like, for example, the one where it talks about the pisseth against the wall and eating dung. The King James will use the exact words of the Hebrew, whereas the all the modern, including the new King James, they soften it up because they're like, nobody will accept that in this day and age. So there's some verses that still no translation will go with, like Galatians, where Paul calls to castrate people. Um, who teach false doctrine? <laughs> no, no translation is bold enough to give the literal translation. They soften up as much as they can. Um, so, and there's even things like there's there there's a lot of people don't realize just how harsh at times the the Bible can be in terms of its language. Um, but the thing is, is it was re- all of the Bible well was well before the Victorian era. Because in the Victorian era is when everything became proper in terms of speech. Everything has to be spoken proper. We don't want to speak in any way that offends anyone in any kind. That was in polit- the that's like the infancy of political correctness. When the Bible was being put together, there was no such thing as political correctness, and so they did not shy away from anything. So, so like I said, so the King. That's why the King James, the New King James, are still very strong translations. I mean, so they're very acceptable. They use um, it's just recognizing that all of them have their weaknesses. I think one of the challenge, like the ESV, I think the biggest weakness in the ESV um, one is they are some of their translation. I don't like how there are a few times where I don't like the way they translate. Um, and and actually, right there, just showing that offspring thing, and they have a few moments kind of like that. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing the ESV falls into is where. Um, they're trying so hard to be accurate on a tr- on a translation that it's unreadable. So, and there are a few verses like when I get because that's what we use for our Sunday readings because um, that's the official translation of the synod. And there are some Sundays when we get it on for the lectionary reading, and I get to some of those passages like this is a really rough read through, and. Because they're, I mean, it's accurate, but it just, it's messy. It's the messiness of going from Greek to English. And they're trying their best to be accurate. And they, um, one of the things also the ESV, what's kind of nice is one of the challenges, one of the things that is kind of a challenge is like with the Psalms. 
The King James, one of the things they try to do really hard is to give maintain a level of poetry yeah. in the Psalms. Um, the ESV actually does it pretty well as well. The and I show and people are like, "Oh, the ESV is just not as poetic as the King James." And I'm like, and what I did is I take Psalm. And I like the Psalm twenty. I think Psalm twenty three is more poetic in the King James than the ESV. And then what's really funny is like, okay, let me pull out those two, compare them, and then you look at them. The only difference is is that. Um, instead of the TH, they use S. Instead of saying, he giveth, he gives. I'm like, that is not more poetic. <laughs> it's just one is old English, the other one's modern English. <laughs> if you actually look at it, it is almost identical. The NIV, there's huge variety. The, the NIV is very different. But one of the, th and so the ESV actually tries really hard to re keep, maintain a lot of the tradition of the King James, and that is an example of that. And but the thing that it has to that is important to remember is that there is no way to maintain the actual poetry of the Psalms because it's Hebrew poetry, mm -hmm. not English poetry. And Hebrew poetry is completely different. Um, sometimes they can do it like um, some like Psalms. They'll do kind of like this. Uh, where they kind of fold in, they, it's like they do the reflection thing, where the first verse is the same, is similar to the last verse, and mm -hmm. like when we were kind of talk, we talked about this on yeah, Sunday. So they sometimes they'll do that. Um, there's the really cool one is if you ever look at Psalm one nineteen, which all of it, yeah, yeah. that's. <laughs> Goal for you. Memorize it by tomorrow. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> Which means you will have, you have no time for anything between now and... You got that. <laughs> but in Psalm 119, if you ever, if you look at it, in most translations, I think they have this. And I think, I don't think there's any translations that don't do this. Um, at the very top of every single one, they have a little word there. So in Psalm 119, verse 1, mm -hmm. at the very top, it says olive. Right, at, right above verse 9, it says Beth. Beth. Mm -hmm. And it does it all the way throughout. Right. And those are the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Oh. Yeah. And the reason is, is so verse 1 through 8 in Hebrew, every single verse starts with olive. In the second, in verses oh. 9 through... 16, every single verse starts with Beth. Every single verse starts with Gamal. That's, what it, that's how the poetry. Every single verse starts with the same letter. Which somebody tried to do that with English, where everyone starts with an A, everyone starts with a B, and they absolutely butchered the translation. Because it doesn't work. So... I mean, that is one of those examples of a poetry that there is no way to recapture in a translation. So, um, and so we have to recognize that with the Hebrew is that you're all, I mean, with, when it comes to the Psalms, you, we cannot fully get the poetry that was originally there just right. without knowing Hebrew. So and, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's so, um, all right, so that's all about translations. And by the way, and so by the way, one thing is study Bibles are helpful. Concordia self study Bible, Lutheran study self study Bible, those are helpful. And Scofield. Which, 
Maybe. <laughs> no, hang so. on. Schofield started Bible. So. But many st um, study Bibles can be very helpful. Um, <clears throat> know that none of them are perfect, but they can be helpful. Actually, what's really helpful is to read the introductions to all the books of the Bible. Um, those are such good information. And, cause that's, and see, that kind of leads into one of the things when you're trying to, um, when, you're learn, when you're reading the Bible. So the next thing you have to do is, so I talked about it very briefly when you're talking about the King James, is textual variant issues. Uh, Mark 16, 9 through 20, if you were to... Now, this is something that every, pretty much every Bible has this in there. Um, I have not seen any Bibles that do not include these verses. But what is key that most modern translations will give a little note right before it. It's, it's in here. So verses 9 through 20, do you see something right above it? Yeah. Hmm. What does it say? The most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. Yeah. Yep. And that is a huge man. This is a this is a, one of the main reason I brought out my Greek New Testament. Is in the Greek New Testament, if you're this so this is the standard one. See all of that writing down here? Mm -hmm. That is every single man, uh, every textual variant on this page. This is every textual variant on this page. There are literally hundreds of thousands of them. And now most of them are very, very small. Mm -hmm. Most of them are like somebody left off an S. And so it should have been plural instead of... I mean, it's like little itty-bitty things here and there that really actually, when you um, look at it, don't even change the meaning of the text. Um, but every now and then you get a huge one like this. Verses 9 to 20 is one that it is pretty much universally agreed this was not originally in Mark's gospel. And the reason why it probably exists is, some, look at what verse 8 said. Read verse 8. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, and they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to man, for they were afraid. Seems like a really odd last verse of the Bible, the book of Mark, doesn't it? Uh -huh. That is the reason, probably. The guy looked as like, he obviously did not mean to end there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to help Mark out and fill it out for him. So are, they, are you saying these things didn't happen? Oh, they happened. It's just that those weren't Mark's words. See, the, what he pro, what the writer did he is he had, he had the book of Acts, he had Matthew, he had John, he had Luke, and he took what happened in those, three, those writings and he blended them together and put it right there. It's like, it's like, there's no way. Mark did not want to end there. But actually, when you read the fullness of the Gospel of Mark, you realize it's actually very intentional. Because one of the themes of Mark is that everybody is clueless. And he wanted to show even the women when they saw that empty tomb were. And it makes very good sense. Through the Gospel of Mark, there's only one human being that recognizes who Jesus is. Fully. And that is the, the one that who oversaw his crucifixion. Mm -hmm. So, and that is why I've, um, and there's the demons recognize who he is, but they hate Jesus. Mm -hmm. But, and so that is, 
so it makes very good sense. But the thing is, like I said, everything in there, and that's the and that's actually a good one to go to because when you look at this is a really good um, example because when you look at the manuscriptal variants, even the one that was you know that was different than New King James or the King James, does any doctrine actually change if you lose that verse? Is there any in the doctrines in that verse? Could you find it elsewhere? Yes. And there is no variant that all of a sudden, oh, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You won't find one like that. So it's actually what's remarkable is how close it still is. And so the main reason I, it's, I bring it up is it is, it is important to be aware of it. Mm-hmm. Because you're atheist or agnostic, they're smart. Many of them are smart and know they exist, and they will use it to discredit Christianity. Go like, oh yeah, they exist, and like, but they don't change anything really big. Um, I mean, even like a really big one in John is the woman caught in adultery, um, where you know whoever's without sin cast the first stone. That is one that is not in John's gospel initially. What is it? But what makes that one interesting is is that most most scholars agree that it happened. But John didn't write it. Nobody knows who wrote it, where it came from. Mm-hmm. Somebody got hold of the story and just slapped it, slapped it into John. And it makes sense because all of a sudden it's like, if you read, especially if you re- you're reading in Greek, it's like all of a sudden John goes through a personality change for a few verses. And then, then he comes back to himself. So, because they have their style. And all of a sudden the style shifted. And that's with Mark here. When you get to verse 9, the style shifts suddenly. Like someone else is writing it. It's because, yeah, someone else is writing. So, um, like I said, none of, but none of these change. No, There's actually a guy named Bart Ehrman. Have you ever heard of him? Mm-hmm. He is a professor at North Carolina State University, I believe. He is a professor of religion. And... He likes to write. He loves to discredit Christianity. Now, into his, in his def, one of the great things about him is he wrote a really good book about the defense for the existence of Jesus. It's actually worth having because he's no he is not a person that's out to give any favors to Christianity, and yet he defends his existence. It's really funny. I've heard radio shows where he'd be talking with these atheists, like, "Don't you think it's ridiculous that anybody would ever believe that Jesus ever existed?" And he's like. Actually, um, while I am wholeheartedly against Christianity, if I said Jesus never existed, I would have to resign my position as historical theologian tomorrow because I am incompetent. <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyways, when it comes to the manuscripts, he'll talk about them. There's a, there's hundreds of thousands of them. So, somebody asked him, and there's a great video of he goes. They go, so is, do any of these manuscripts change any major Christian doctrine? He goes, no, but there could be one out there that exists. <laughs> so, yeah, you're going on faith. <laughs> so, um, and granted, he grew up in a very abusive form of Christianity, and he's kind of in retaliation mode. So, but anyways, so that's why I bring that up, just so you're aware of it. Um, and actually, what's really nice is a lot of Bibles will give you like little footnotes and let you know, okay, this isn't. Oh, it's here. It is there? It okay. Is here. So good, the New, New King James does. Yeah, it says um, verses 9 through 20 are not found in the two most ancient mag- uh, yeah. manuscripts. 
by the way, speaking of manuscripts, they did within the last, um, and we talked, we were talking about this on Tuesday night, but um, in the last couple, last year, they have found what could possibly be the oldest manuscript ever found. Wow. Right, currently the oldest manuscript is from the middle of the second century. It's from the, it's a little strip from the Gospel of John. They, have, they may have found, and they have yet to verify it, but they may have found a manuscript from the Gospel of Mark that dates from the mid-first century, and it's an entire paragraph of it. And if that is the case, they say, if it tr proves to be what it is, the dating proves accurate, they will be able to date the Gospel of Mark to 45 AD. That's within just over a decade after the crucifixion, which is remarkable in ancient times because they didn't have computers to just type up the story. They had papyrus that took a lot longer to find the right things. So also they thought Jesus was coming back a lot quicker. So, by the way, one other translation in there that's really hard. Two translations are not very familiar. Um, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, or sometimes it's just called the Christian Standard Bible, it's actually a pretty good translation. Problem is they at times they take real liberties, but I give them credit, they're honest when they take the liberties. <laughs> they're like, they take the liberty and then they put a little footnote. Admittedly, it probably should say this, which I'm probably like, why don't you just say it that way? <laughs> put the other one in your commentary section. <laughs> so anyways, um, the Evangelical Heritage Version, that is the one that's done by the Wisconsin Synod. They're working on They only have the New Testament available. Which it, and when I've looked when I've looked at it, at points it's strong, at points it's weak. It's kind of a mixed bag, and that's Wisconsin City trying to find their way to break out of the NIV deal, and they think, well, mm. if we make our own, maybe we could get out of it. Mm. So, uh, anyways, so anyway, so that is all that stuff. Uh, important presuppositions when you're reading your Bible, one. The okay, question. Is the Bible God's word or man's word? God's word written by man. Spoken by man. It's kind of a trick. Well, you're, you're accurate, but it's kind of a trick question in that it's yes. But it's inspired by the Holy yeah. Spirit. So what I mean is, so it's, yeah, it's, so base, it's ultimately it's God's word. Mm -hmm. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it is actually also, it is man's word. And the reason that distinction is important is to understand that all of them have their own personalities. Now, is this is they're not roboted. That they're not like all because otherwise they would all look exactly the same. They all use every word exactly the same, and every single instance they don't. That is why you have it where, like, you know, question. Here's a good question. How many disciples are there according to the New Testament? Twelve. 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 No. no a this question. is a trick question. No. Well, there were the, 14 if you... No. Mm -hmm. Disciples. Disciples, not apostles. Oh, okay. Everyone was Every, a disciple. Yeah. All the people. It's, it depends. The followers. Actually, it basically ultimately depends on who's writing. Mm -hmm. For some writers, some, some writers in the New Testament, there are only 12. In mm -hmm. um, some, it is every single Christian. Yeah, and that's and that's what I, that's just kind of the point is that some tran two different books of the Bible will use the same word differently, and or I should say two different authors, 
And so that is, I mean, that's part of that personality that's in there. Um, and that's kind of one of those things that help you identify, you know, is this supposed to be here? Is this not supposed to be here when they're doing the manuscript issue? It's because they, when you read through it enough, you begin to realize, okay, this is the way the guy writes. Um, so before Jesus was crucified, they were disciples. And after they came to real faith, they became the apostles. Is that it? Depends. I mean, how did that? Well, actually, the apostle. It, again, it depends on who you're ta who the writer is. Um, in, um, I think John's gospel is the one that disciples are just the twelve. Mm -hmm. Matthew, it's everybody. Um, same thing with um, same thing with Luke. Luke is very painstakingly will make the distinction between apostles and disciples, or Luke and Acts, which are both written by the same person. Right. Um, so they're both, uh, so the, the, the apostles are only people who were eyewitnesses of Christ and sent. Okay. So that's why if you ever have somebody today say, oh, I'm an apostle, like, no, you're not. Because you have not, Jesus ascended into heaven quite a while ago. Um, so. Impossible. Huh? Impossible. Yeah. So, or, I mean, I suppose it's possible for Jesus to show himself, but I'd be extremely skeptical. I'd be testing literally every single thing they said against the scriptures. And most of the ones that call themselves apostles, you, it'll take 10 minutes to figure out, nope, you're not. If you're an apostle of anybody, it might be the other guy. Um, that's honest. There's a, there are churches like that. They're, yeah. Anyways, um, next one is very important. The Bible is not about you. Amen. It is for you, but not about you. Who is it all about? Jesus. 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 Don't you like me asking the Sunday school answer questions? <laughs> but yes, it's all about Jesus. And who said that about? Jesus did. Um, and Luke, he, said, he says that all the scriptures bear witness to me. Now it's all about him. Everything in some way or another is pointing to him we're pointing back at them. And so whenever we, if you go into a Bible, if you read a Bible passage and the first question you ask, what does it say about me? You're in trouble right off the bat. There's, there's a pastor up in um, Grand Forks. No, it's actually, it's a um, Kanzvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. Um, but he lives in Grand Forks. Uh, he, he coined a term. It's called Jesus which is where you read yourself into a Bible text. Because mm -hmm. eisegesis means reading something into the passage that's not there, which is always a really challenging thing to not do. We always kind of run that risk. And sometimes, so in other words, when you're reading things, sometimes you got to be honest that you're reading into it. Um, narcissism is when you're absorbed in yourself. So narcissism is when you are so absorbed in yourself, you see yourself at everything. And there are, I mean... I've the same pastor. He does a he does a podcast where he reviews sermons, and he did one. He was doing this uh, three different sermons about the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's amazing how good they were at getting the Garden of Gethsemane to be about all about you. It's like when was your Garden of Gethsemane moment, and they'd jump past Jesus like that. It's like. Nothing about Jesus agonizing over about to suffer and die about for you? Nope, nope, nope. We got to talk about you. 
Like, oh boy. Anyways, and the thing is that, I mean, some of these pastors, they can fill up their churches into the thousands. Yeah, people don't really want to hear the true word. People, so it's the itching ears thing. And mm-hmm. first, the first Timothy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, third, the Bible is to be studied within the community of faith. There's a difference between what is it? It's solo, there's sola scriptura and there's solo scriptura. We are sola scriptura, meaning nothing we believe, no, is everything we believe is based upon scripture alone. But that does not mean you're supposed to read scripture alone. Now, it's not by yourself only. It's good to read the Bible by yourself, but you should be in conversation with others. Um, because when we go completely isolated studying, we find our, we will get ourselves into troubles. And that's actually when a lot of heresies arise. Um, um, so it's one of the painstaking things is heresies just keep coming back. And it's because people insist on abandoning every element of, it, of the church. And it's like, oh, we dealt with this 1,500 years ago. It's like, all right, let's go through this again. And so that's why that's why we go into church, and that is why we discuss and we talk about, we build off of one another. Um, so those are three very important. So and then when you get so when you get to the text itself, um, questions you ask, who wrote this? This is where having one of those commentaries are kind of helpful. Um, so and understand, not every book of the Bible do you know who wrote it. Um, a really good example, Hebrews. No one knows who wrote Hebrews. Um, there's a lot of speculation as to who wrote it. Um, I'm, I'm kind of of the mind it's somebody we don't know. I've, the only thing, I, I think it's probably somebody who is related to, that knew Paul and knew John very well. But I don't think it was either of them. I think it was somebody else. It could have been Apollos that's been argued but honestly we have no clue um and there's a lot of books of the old testament that are, fall into that situation too where we don't know who wrote it but um but a lot of them, the new testament especially most of them we know who wrote it and we have some ideas as to who they are and what what they lived like um you know like matthew we we know he was one of the apostles um and by the way, and this is the thing is, well, okay, I'll get to this part a little bit later. All right, second, who are they writing to? Um, Luke, for example, is writing to Gentiles. Um, Matthew is writing to Jews. That makes it different. That's why Matthew has a lot more um, references to the Old Testament, whereas Luke avoids them largely. I mean, they're in there, but they're not a lot. And it has actually a really strong focus on the faith of Gentiles at times. And the reason is, is because that's the people he's dealing with. He's trying to write to. Um, Galatians, really interesting. Galatians, by the way, it's, um, and actually something that's actually helpful is also, so the next part is what is historical context? When is this being written? So like Galatians and Romans are basically sequels to each other. The question is, which one was which one's the sequel to which? Some people think Galatians was first. Some people think Romans was first. What is known is that they were written very close together, and they were written when um, Paul was on his way to the Jerusalem Council, 
And it was basically because he was dealing with the issue of circumcision, and he was writing it to these two different... The, he was writing it to the Romans to get their... the church in Rome to get their support. Admittedly, it's a bit political, which is... But the thing is, he never met them, which is why it's not... If you actually read Romans, it's not very personal. Like, you read, he doesn't say, like, I really want... Like, I've... I really, you know, such and such, I miss seeing you, whatever. He doesn't have a whole lot of that mm -hmm. because he's never met any of them. He longs to meet them, but he hasn't yet. Okay. Galatians is him, his, him getting really ticked off at these people who have fallen into the thing of circumcision, and he's trying to get them back on course, which is why he's like, you foolish Galatians. That's where he also has the castration thing. And he also, it's the, out of all, and this is one of those things where it's really cool when you look at, when you consider when it's being written and who it's writing to, if you look at the very beginning of every single one of Paul's Gospels, of Paul's letters, he has this nice little greeting where he's like, he lifts them up and he says, to the saints in such and such, to the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Rome. He does all this little fluffy things to lift them up, <laughs> except for one. Galatians. He just goes right in and starts slamming at them, which is basically, it's the angry letter from mom or dad when you wrecked the house or something like that when they are gone, or so, when you had a party when they went away for the weekend. That is what, <laughs> that, he is just angry. And it actually shows a lot of personality into the letter when you realize what he's doing. And, and it, that is kind of one of the cool things about the Bible. It's just how Rem that is why it is important to remember it is it is it is both God divine and human is that their personalities are coming out their emotions their what they're angry about is coming out um, next up is how does the passage connect with the rest of the book um, which you know the longer the gospel longer the book that you're reading the harder that is which is why you read a book of the Bible more than once that's actually why the one of the rules I my last rule in there is read the Bible over and over and over and over because you can you will never get it all because there are things that I mean like the example again I used this past week is I was listening to a podcast by another pastor and he was talking about the Gospel of John and it was something I never noticed at all until he was talking about it and and there's there's a lot of things for John. I mean, like even like last year when I started talking about how you realize that the crucifixion is a marriage. I'm like, whoa, this is kind of cool. That's another discussion. But um, in John, the one that he just came across was this. So the very beginning of John, you have this thing where the those who dwelt in darkness have had seen a great light. That's at the very first chapter. Towards the end, you have Jesus saying to... Thomas, blessed are those who have not who have believed who have seen it who have not seen it yet have believed, and at the almost the center of the Gospel of John, is the healing of this blind man, and it takes up a fairly sizable chunk of reading, and it's like who who sinned this man or his parents and and Jesus says this is to bring glory to God, and you realize that that actually is the central moment of the entire Gospel of John. And that's something I never even realized. Like, whoa. And that's, you cannot do that unless you read it over and over and over. If you read it once, it's really hard to catch all of that. Um, 
So anyway, so that's how you're connecting it to the rest of the book. And if it's written by multiple authors, like read John, the Gospel of John. If you get done with the Gospel of John, go straight to 1 John because they are so intricately connected. Um, really fun is compare 1 John 3.16 to John 3.16. You can see they, 1 John 3.16 almost feels like it's the follow-up to John 3.16. And so... Luke and Acts are very much connected to each other. Um, but also know the challenges between different books of the Bible, like I mentioned with the different uses of words. Um, a lot of times when a pastor is preaching, for example, we try our best to stick with that book of the Bible or other books written by the same person because when we pull in another passage, that other writer might be using those same words differently. And we might actually accidentally be distorting, which actually leads to another thing. Um, and that number five, read passages and books of the Bible. Oh, sorry, the last one. Do not rip passages out of context. Read what is around, read at least the paragraph around it, not just the single verse. Because when you just read the single verse, Proverbs, usually you can get away with it. That's about the only book of the Bible you can get away with it quite a bit. I think mm. televangelists do that a lot. Oh, they, yeah. One of the ones that I always, yeah. No, look, I was going to say that's done quite often. I know the they do. Portals of prayer. Well, actually, with the portals of prayer, they don't do it anymore. They used to have a book of the Bible on the top there you're supposed to read. Yeah, they do. Okay. Well, no, there actually. What's is there an actual fuller passage you're supposed to read yeah, each day? Yeah, this is read Jeremiah eight, verses eighteen through twenty-two, and then Psalm one hundred eight. Okay. But I noticed in reading it, uh, it starts. For example, it says uh, chapter five, verses fourteen to sixteen. Yeah, and, and actually, I I won't do that. And I was questioning myself. Just Actually, the other day, am I breaking away from what I should be doing? I will be fully honest. CPH is awful at doing that. Okay. okay. <laughs> so <laughs> they do. They all because do you know what's actually how they got Luther. The biggest way that we get Lutherans. The yeah. The biggest way that Lutherans have fallen into this habit is because of our small catechisms. Mm. And I don't mean the the part that Luther did. I'm talking about the parts that came out of CPH. If you get your typical catechism, the actual catechism is only like a couple pages. But the, what you usually get in you know, confirmation is that big burgundy book, and there's a whole bunch of questions and answers, and they do those verses all the time. And admittedly, most of the time they are using it right, but it gets you in the habit of not checking to make sure. And there are a couple points where they do miss, they do abuse a passage. And I'm like, ugh. Which is actually, if I had it my way, we would not use those catechisms at all. I would just get the little itty-bitty pocket ones. Mm -hmm. And for one, they're cheap. They're way cheaper. Because <laughs> they're like a dollar. A dollar a piece. So $5 for 10 of them, I think it is. Um, so that they're a lot cheaper. And the other thing is it breaks that habit. And what it... And so, like I said, what I prefer, get people to read the passage in context. And, you know, talk about televangelists and some of the really big megachurch preachers. Or um, have you seen the movie, uh, are you familiar with the movie um, Woodlawn? 
It's a it's a Christian based football movie. Um, in the trailer, they had this line which they used in the movie. It says the good book says, "Where there is no vision, the people perish," which is half of a verse in Proverbs, which yanked, which is completely yanked out of context, and it is an absolute favorite of the vision casting pastors. Which, if you ever hear a pastor you quote that little verse, just that thing, just say, "All right, I'm going to go find another church," yeah. because that pastor is going to bamboozle you for good he's because what he's going to tell you i'm going to give you my god-given vision which by the way because it's god-given you can't question it because if you question it you're questioning god that's the way they operate it's almost a they actually the full philosophy of those type of churches they're actually they don't know it because they haven't studied deeper into their the philosoph philosophical roots of their ministry but it's rooted out of uh, benito mussolini's philosophies mm -hmm fascism <laughs> so like i said um now granted it took a while to get to them but they're going through some other another person that got it from him but they don't realize that he got it from him so anyways um so that is why don't read the passage like if you have something like that with the portals of prayer just pull out your bible and look at least the paragraph That's what I so um and that will help make sure. I mean, hopefully they're usually using it right. Um, and I th and admittedly, I think part of the problem is is that that is the way they did it in the Middle Ages. But the re they they were the people that they were writing to when they did that were so learned that if you said just one random verse, they knew what the verses were around it because <laughs> they knew it by heart. <laughs> so like, that's why that's why like when Luther is writing, he will just. He'll just pull, throw a random verse in there. And pretty much everybody at that time did it because they're talking to the scholars, these guys that just read it in Greek and Hebrew every single day. They have church, you know, six or seven times a day. They know it. And so when they say it, they know exactly what he's talking about. Whereas when we read it, we don't have that level of literacy. Um, not even pastors. Um, and I'd say a lot of times myself included. <laughs> So that's why it's important to pull it out and double check on it. Um, so next question is, what does this passage say about God? And I say any person of the Trinity, so that's why I say God. Um, second part, what does it say about Jesus? I know Jesus is God, but specifically that person of the Trinity. Now some passages, it's going to be really hard to find that. But a lot of them, they're actually, there's a lot, we'd be surprised by a lot of the passages that are ultimately about Jesus. And we have no realization that they are. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're very, very subtle. And, you know, the very simple thing of why, you know, why does God keep preserving Israel? I'm in the southern kingdom. Why does he keep letting them live when they are just absolutely awful? And he has every right to just wipe them out like he did the northern kingdom. Why won't he do it? Well, because he kept that promise all the way back in Genesis 3, and he won't break it. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's because of Jesus. And so the northern, the northern kingdom did not have Jesus in their line, in their lineage. Mm -hmm. That's why they are wiped out. The southern kingdom did. So um, 
Then, after you've gone through all these paths, then you can ask, what does this say about me? <laughs> it is actually good to ask that question, but it should be your last question, not your first. Because basically what you're doing is you're giving yourself the filter to proper, you're giving yourself the mindset to interpret that rightly. Because yes, it does have something to, most passages are going to have something to say to you. But also, and actually I didn't put it in here, but it's important to know the difference between a descriptive text and a prescriptive text. For example, Matthew walking out, well not Matthew, but Peter walking out on the water towards Jesus. That does not mean if you have enough, you go up to Lake Okoboji and you have a lot of faith, you should go test that one out. Because Jesus is not the other way saying, hey, come on out. Uh, if that happens, then go ahead. But otherwise, don't test. Actually, test it and let me get a camera first. <laughs> like, this is going to be so awesome. This is on YouTube. <laughs> so, the snake people. Huh? That's the snake people. And let the snakes bite them because they think. Yeah, actually, actually that's, admittedly, that's one of the nice things about that Mark 16 passage. When you realize that that's not in there, you lose, they lose the snake handling passage because it's only in that block of text. It's the only place you could find anything about snake handling. And even there, it's tough to pull it out. But um, there's a, anyway, so that is, and there's probably a few other things I probably missed on that, but that's kind of a pretty good standard. I mean, and the thing is, you automatically, the more a person reads the Bible, the more you automatically will do it. I mean, it's just like when you drive, get in a car, you automatically look at the mirror. You already have, you know, it's like you don't pull. I get. Hopefully, nobody's pulling out there like, okay, what do I do? Put the key in the ignition. Okay, turn. <laughs> do I need to look at the? Oh, look at the mirrors. Good idea. So you know, we don't do that. We just do everything automatically, and that's the way the Bible. It's like driving a car, riding a bike, whatever. Um, you, it becomes natural, and and when you do, and when you actually do read it that way, it's the you realize just how awesome, more how awesome the Bible is. I mean, these are incredible stories of real people, and when I say stories, and I say real people, I mean real people that lived in real places. I mean, it's historical. This isn't. I mean, they're as real as you are, and so. Um, it's and that makes that that means it's true, and so that's why it's such an it's like you're reading this awesome, you know. I I, mean, I talk about it like I love watching movies and I love these great you know I love like things like Star Wars and Marvel. Um, I'm going to Star Wars Celebration in March or April, and I can't, oh that's gonna be so awesome. But anyways, um, and I love those stories. But the thing is. The story of the scriptures are so much more awesome. And what's even more awesome is that they are true. As far as I know, the long, long time ago didn't really happen a long time ago. You know, the, the galaxy far, far away. Maybe I'll be surprised to find out there really was a Death Star. But till then, this one's real. And so, so with that, uh, let's uh, close with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your holy word. We give you thanks that by your word, we, you have given us the news of salvation, the news 
of your wondrous works and deeds and how you, through the history of the world, have brought Christ to us and through your word have declared to us what he has done and continues to do for us. So we pray that you'd ever keep us steadfast in your word, that we would read, mark, and inwardly digest it, and that we would make it, that it would be made a part of our lives and how we live in relationship to others, and in that we would have it, that it would pour forth from our lips, that we would speak it to others that need to hear it, that they may have life. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, I can't remember what I got next week. <laughs> for, um, I think next week we're going to do an overview of the Old Testament. I'll try. My goal is to do an hour, but I definitely went over. <laughs> I went an hour and a half. So we're going to say 60 to 90 minutes will be each meeting. <laughs> so um, I'm going to do like old. So next week I'll do an Old Testament overview, which hopefully I can do that in that time frame because Old Testament's big. So when it's, took, it's, huh? When I took Old Testament, um, Dr. Jerkin, I don't know if you know who that is. But he gave us a big list of all the kings of the Old Testament and if they were like good, bad, really bad, like terribly, terribly, terribly bad. It's awesome. <laughs> Our, I won't lie, my Old Testament class was, I was falling asleep a lot. <laughs> that was actually Dr. Jastrom who, yeah, you guys met. Brilliant, brilliant man. I mean, he, he knows 17 different languages. Uh, he actually worked on the Dead Sea Scroll, on a part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, the actual piece from, is from the Book of Numbers. And, and so, like, he know, um, so, like, he knows, he's efficient in Hebrew, Aramaic, like, ancient Hebrew. I mean, back when Hebrew did not have vowel pointing and all those type of things. But when I sat in on his, class, in his Old Testament class, it was just so dry. Every time, and I, and because I was falling asleep during the class all the time, I didn't remember where half the things I learned. So tests were always hard. <laughs> so it was amazing that I made it through there that class. So yeah, my professor had a really loud voice. He was an older, older guy with a loud voice. So. Now the funny thing is, is that that same professor, when I took his Psalms class. He was extremely interesting. Like, he would crack jokes all the time. And it's like, he almost like, we actually, the way he was, we all started cracking jokes that he might be the real life Indiana Jones. Because, for one, you know, the, if you've seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, there's that, at the very end of the movie, there's like this old church that they go to where they find the grail. Um, Pat, Dr. Jastrom has actually been to that real place, oh. and he taught. He taught. He told us it stunk. It stinks really bad. Um, but the thing is, so he told us about that, and and like you know how, uh, and like you know Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones is just a real smooth kind of a ladies' man type thing, and Dr. Jastrom, but in a husbandly way, every time now that kind of plays that off. I mean, he's, I mean, he's perfectly, I mean, in a very Christian way because he's talking about his wife. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> it's like, 
And so one year, I think people were talking to do for his, uh, at the end of their school year, they're going to put an Indiana Jones whip on his doorknob. Nice. <laughs> cool. So. Thank you, Master. Yep. We'll see you next, well, maybe Sunday too. Yep. So. All right. Tomorrow's doctor's appointments and getting ready for weddings. Would anybody be able to lock those doors? I can. Okay. Looking to help with DBS? We can use help from the DBS. And by the way, on the last day, we're planning to go to, we're planning to be at Morgan Park. Kind of fits in with the whole splash canyon, like naturey, watery thingy. And trying to work on now, and then we're also trying to figure out what to do for fall curriculums. Mm -hmm. I am, at least. So, that's such a challenge. I'm looking at another, I'm looking at another um, CPH one, the, it's called Crossing something, Crossroads, cro I don't see cross. Also looked at Northwest Partners. Huh. 
I'm looking at one of these addresses and they're just two blocks from my house that I grew up in. Because <laughs> I live at 210 Northeast Sherman Drive. He lives at 206 Northeast Crestmore, Ankeny, Iowa. Mm -hmm. So. Which one have you done for three years? Well, okay. Yeah, we need help with that one. <laughs> I, think we're gonna, I think we're still going to look at doing a separate class for them because they lose attention like that. It's hard. It's a tough one. Can you shut the light off? Oh, it's just that 